Morning again, everyone. There are way too many things that I just don't understand, and that drives me crazy. It's probably why I've always been a bit of a researcher. If I get a question in my head, I'll feel irresistibly drawn towards finding the answer. In fact, a week or so ago, a question came up about the the distance traveled when walking a circuit around this auditorium. So what did I do? Well, I I measured the length of my walking stride and plugged that into my Fitbit profile, or this little pedometer activity tracker thing. I'd never gotten around to measuring that before. And so I I measured my walking stride, put it in my profile, and I started walking. Um, And in case anyone's wondering, about 10 laps around is about a quarter of a mile. It's more like nine and a half or so. But for basic information, for simple facts like that, it's not much of a problem. Uh, for bigger questions of life, though, I've had to learn to accept a frequent absence of simple answers just waiting to be found. And that absence is pretty common when trying to understand people rather than things. And that absence of simple answers is especially common when trying to understand God. So there are many things about God that I just don't understand, you know, said your preacher. But this shouldn't surprise me. 1 Corinthians one twenty five says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Or Romans 11.33, I love how the New Revised Standard translates this. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Inscrutable really feels like the right word there. The mind of God is so far beyond the human mind that we just don't have access to all of the answers. Now, I know I should expect this, but it still drives me crazy. One of the greatest struggles in the formative years of my faith was trying to understand why did God give us such freedom to choose when we knew how often we would choose so poorly. I know I've talked about this before, but you have to admit there is great risk in free will. I always remember a recorded lecture that we listened to in my Christian home class in college. And yes, I had a required course called Christian Home. Uh, Nothing says what kind of school you attended more than that particular course title on your transcript. But so in Christian Home class, um, we were listening to a lecture from a parenting seminar. And it was dealing with how to help kids transition from just obeying instructions to making wise choices, making wise decisions on their own. And the overall idea was that if kids only know how to follow that outside voice, eventually that parental voice will just be replaced by a different voice and probably one that doesn't always have the best of intentions for the child. Now, many parents would just really like to make it to that obeying stage, uh, but the speaker was dealing really with the next stage giving responsibility over the small decisions that even very young children can handle. And the key here was providing only options that you'd be happy with, no matter which choice was made. You know, do you want to wear your blue pajamas or your red pajamas? I mean, either way, the kid's getting ready for bed. So either way, the goal is being met. But there's those small decisions, those small choices that can begin to be made from an early age. And over time, you hand over bigger and bigger decisions, you know, with greater responsibilities and, and greater potential consequences. And I think that's a really good parenting strategy. That's always stuck with me. But God didn't seem to follow this plan, did he? 
right out of the gate, he gives mankind the freedom to either follow him or go their own way. He gives us the big decision right from the get-go. But that's not enough. Then he takes it a step further and he blesses us. He gives us more. Now, you could be forgiven for looking at that like someone giving like a gift of a really good chef's knife you know, to a toddler. You know, that's a really nice gift, but maybe that's not such a good idea. Maybe, you know, I mean, we know that every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father, it says in James 1.17, but we have shown how untrustworthy we can be with just the simple choice, well, maybe not so simple, but the simple choice of good and evil. But now he ups the ante, and he gives us more to work with. And think about it, he gave you breath today. And he also gave you voice with that breath. For you to bless or to curse. To sing in praise or to shout in anger. He gave you the ability to get here this morning. Plenty of cars in the parking lot here. But where else might that freedom of transportation take you? Maybe places that we shouldn't find ourselves. He gave you the material blessings that allowed us to give for the work of the church here this morning. But how else might our financial decisions affect the world around us, both for the good and for the ill? He gives and he gives and he gives And we have to choose, how are we going to use these gifts? And he doesn't just give to the worthy, but to the unworthy as well. Today, God gave the same 24 hours to the one who would spend them in humble service and to the one who would spend them in willful sin. He gave the same thing to both. In fact, when Jesus is teaching on how we should treat others, even our enemies and our persecutors, he highlights this truth about God's provision for all of his creation. In Matthew 5, starting at verse 43, it says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're acting like children of our Father in heaven when we love our enemies like He does. In fact, God's perfection is revealed through his equal provision of the blessings of sun and rain, even to his enemies. I guess my imperfection is revealed through how hard it is for me to understand that. Now, yes, I believe there are particular blessings that come to those who follow God. But we have to admit, even those of us who count ourselves among the faithful, we don't always do the greatest job with those blessings either. Yet, he still gives. He still blesses over and over again. And I've only come up with one explanation that just starts to satisfy that need I have for understanding. Well, generally that God knows what he's doing, even if I don't. But specifically, that the upside must be worth the downside. There's so much power in good that it's worth allowing evil. There's so much beauty in love that it's worth risking that rejection. Even though some 
will use God's blessings for their own selfish gain. You see, in the hands of God's people, the potential of those same blessings is beyond anything we can imagine. So this morning, I'm I'm beginning a series of lessons that I'm calling Dangerous Blessing. We'll look through the lens of some different blessings that God gives us at this tension that exists when, when God does bless us. Because we have to admit there is danger inherent in receiving a blessing from God. The danger comes not from the blessing, but from how we receive it. Do we receive blessings from God with gratitude? Are we ready to use those blessings to then bless others? Or do we pursue blessings for our own benefit? Because the pursuit of blessing is very, very different than the pursuit of God. You see, we pursue God who blesses. And we allow ourselves to be a conduit through which God blesses the rest of the world. We know, or at least we should know, that when God shows his favor to us, it's not only for our good, but for the good of the world which God loves. Whenever we receive any blessing from God, we don't just view it as something to possess for our own benefit. We get to be like Abraham, who was blessed by God, so that through him, all the nations of the earth could be blessed. Now when we think of those in Scripture, especially whom God blessed, David, the shepherd boy who became the great king of Israel, is certainly on that list. But there was a time in David's life where things were so rough that even a small blessing must have seemed like something to just cling to. After rising to prominence among the people of Israel, becoming famous for slaying Goliath and his military exploits, David was seen as a threat by Israel's then king Saul. Such a threat that David, excuse me, Saul is determined to take David's life. So David, this great champion of Israel, the man already anointed as the next king, is running for his life. And that's where we join his story over in 1 Samuel 22. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him. And he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. David finds some safety, the safety of a stronghold for himself. He finds sanctuary nearby for his parents. Hundreds of others who needed safety, who, who looked to David for refuge, were able to find their relief there as well. So now David not only has the, the safety of a fortified, defensible place, but he also has the added safety of a 400-man army at his command. Now, I imagine that David would have been perfectly happy to just stay right there in safety. I don't think that you know, he would have argued with God as he's sitting there in a cave whose name means refuge. If God had said, you know what, just, just stay there. Just rest for a little while longer, David. 
I don't think he would have put up much of a fight with that instruction. But that's not what happened. The prophet Gad said, don't stay in the stronghold. Go to the land of Judah. Now think about that. Go and start moving back toward the one who would do you harm. Go back toward the king who wants you dead. And he does. Now, he and his men were sent to where, yes, there was little safety, but they were also sent to where they were needed. Next, in in chapter 23, David finds out that the Philistines are attacking Keilah, a town there in Judah, a town that I suppose the armies of Saul should have been protecting. But David's probably wondering at this point if maybe this is the reason God sent him there, sent him back to Judah, sent him out of his stronghold. So he asked the Lord if he should act. And the answer comes back from the Lord, yes, go and save Keilah from the Philistines. Now, just so we don't think that this is all so simple for David and his men, the text provides us with their initial reaction to this instruction. In verse 3 it says, But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? See, they knew they weren't in the stronghold anymore. They had left, excuse me, they had left safety in Moab, and they were already back in Saul's territory. And now they're jumping out of the frying pan into the fire, running headlong into active conflict with forces that have been known to leave even Saul's armies afraid. But God didn't bring them together just to make them feel safe. He brought them together to fulfill his purposes. So David double checks with God. And God says he will indeed give the Philistines into David's hand. So they do as God instructs. They defeat the Philistines and they save the people of Keilah. Of course, that's not the end of the story until Saul's death and even for a while after that. David and his men are moving back and forth between safety and danger, between refuge and mission. But I think there's a lot that we can learn from this particular time in David's life. Because we can come together to find a place of safety with like-minded refugees from the world. We can gather like David's ragtag bunch of ill-contents and exiles, debtors and asylum seekers, and frankly, that's what the church looks like sometimes, or how church feels sometimes. And there is a time for that. We need a place of refuge, a place where we can feel at ease among those who've gathered together for the same purpose. Even if the church sometimes looks a little bit like that motley crew that gathered around David, we know that no matter who we are or where we've come from, we're unified by who we're coming to. But refuge doesn't accomplish the mission. Refuge should refresh us and prepare us to work with God as he works to reconcile the world to himself. But the safety we find here is not our ultimate goal. And when we make that subtle or maybe not so subtle shift from mission mindset to a stronghold mindset, will we expose ourselves to far greater dangers than those that lurk out there in the world. We can easily become entrenched and start defending the stronghold. 
We can start to believe that the stronghold is what needs defending instead of defending us and providing us with some defense and that we're the ones who must defend it. A blessing that serves the mission becomes confused with the mission itself. We start to act like a a mechanic who loves his tools so much that he won't use them to fix anything for fear of getting them too worn and dirty, or, or a man who loves his money so much that he just can't bring himself to spend it, even on food for his family. This kind of thinking can easily lead us to making an idol out of the church itself. God uses this family to, to give you a safe place to grow and flourish and prepare us to join in his work, but we can't let ourselves forget that he uses this place of safety so that we can be sent out from here into a world that doesn't always feel so safe. Now, just like anyone else, I can get so focused on the you know, church stuff that I forget that what we do here doesn't accomplish all of God's intentions for us. I can leave here thinking, oh, well, we, we did church pretty well today without enough thought to how we're doing church out there. Do you step out of those doors each week, asking yourself, what's my mission out here? What has God prepared me for during this time with my family, this time of refuge and safety? Or do you step out of those doors asking yourself, okay, what's the path of least resistance? How can I avoid trouble out here? until I return, come back to my stronghold, back to my safety? Or do you just step out of those doors asking yourself, hey, what's for lunch? Forgetting that one of the primary reasons that we've come together here is preparation to be sent out from here. We're not done when we leave. If we don't leave here each week excited about what God's doing through us out there, I wonder if it's because we're not letting him use us to do something worth getting excited about. If we leave here fearful, I wonder if we've actually listened to the songs that we've sung, the scripture that we've read, the gospel that we've proclaimed. Have we forgotten that all-surpassing power of the God who brought us here in the first place? Because even when we do venture out into the world, we don't actually leave our stronghold. Because the gathered church and the, the safe place that it provides is not the source of our safety. It's just one of the many ways that God shelters us. He is our stronghold. He is our protector. He is our fortress, no matter what ground we might find ourselves standing on. See, no matter how safe I may feel here among you, my, my family, my friends, my fellow disciples, I'm not safe here because of you. We do all we can to make this per- place a, this church a safe place to pursue God, to, to find encouragement, to gain some strength, some relief from the troubles of this world. But ultimately, the reason this place is safe is because God brings us here together. We come together here under His banner and not our own. And because God is our stronghold, when we leave this place, The world outside isn't so dangerous after all. We can go confidently wherever God leaves us. We can, wherever we see opportunities to join with God's work in the world, we can be confident because God is with us. 
Just as Moses told Joshua as he's passing the mantle of leadership in Deuteronomy 31.8, as the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you, he will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. We also have to remember a lesson from David's departure from Adullam. God didn't send David out of the cave just so he could face danger. He sent him out there because there was good that he needed to do out there. David couldn't just be God's man in the stronghold. He had to be God's man in the world. We can't just be God's people in the worship service, in the Bible class, in the fellowship, in the small group. No. We can only be God's people if we're also being God's people in the world. We can step out those doors with boldness today, with confidence Because the Lord is always with us. Now, I don't know exactly when David wrote Psalm 27. I read the beginning of our service this morning. But as I read from these opening verses of the psalm, I can hear his departure from Adullam in his words. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At His sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. You see, David didn't fear his enemies. Because the Lord was the stronghold of his life, not the cave. No, the Lord was the stronghold of his life. And he is still the stronghold of your life and of mine today. Now, if you've forgotten that truth, if you've forgotten where your safety lies, if you've forgotten what this blessing of safety that God has given you really means and where it really comes from, Pray that God would give you boldness today. Confidence that comes from knowing that you are in the hands of a king whom even death couldn't defeat. So why should you be afraid? And if you haven't placed yourself in his hands, if you haven't given your life to him, if you need that assurance that only Jesus can provide, I hope and pray that you'll take at least one step closer to him today. Wherever you might think you found your safety, as scary as it might feel to take a step toward Jesus, you're not stepping away from your safety. I promise you, you're stepping toward it. If we can help you with that in any way this morning, if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, or if you want to give your life to him today and be baptized in his name, if there's anything that we can do to help you, please come and let us know now while we stand and while we sing.